In the last few years, there's been a kind of shift in the way that greenwashing has entered the public consciousness. For many years, it was really all about product-based claims. But what the shift has been is over the past few years, firms have increasingly been making claims about their environmental impact as a whole or their climate impact. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. Picture yourself at a farmer's market, examining the various produce on display. You come across a basket of apples labeled organic, and you decide to buy it, believing it to be a healthier and more eco-friendly choice. However, you later discover that the farmer had simply slapped on the organic label without following proper farming practices. This is an example of traditional product-based greenwashing done on a much smaller scale. But as our guest for today, Sarah Light, points out, companies are now shifting their greenwashing tactics to make broader claims about their sustainability practices as a whole, rather than just focusing on individual products. Her research focuses on the intersection of environmental law and corporate behavior. And during this episode, she'll help us explore this shift and its implications. We'll dive deeper into how businesses might use these claims to appeal to eco-conscious consumers while masking their negative environmental practices and how this manipulates consumer behavior. From corporations that tout their carbon offset program or recycling initiatives while still engaging in unsustainable business practices to businesses that misrepresent their sustainability efforts. We'll examine the dangers of greenwashing and what consumers can do to better educate themselves and make informed choices. So let's dive into today's edition of The Ripple Effect with Sarah Light. This topic of greenwashing, we've heard it uh, talked about a lot in the public. It's obviously come up a lot in the media. For those that maybe don't have a a total grasp on it, give us a, a definition of what greenwashing is. Absolutely. So greenwashing is kind of this umbrella expression that refers to situations in which an entity is publicly making statements about its environmental impact or the environmental impact of its products or services that are not actually borne out by the evidence. So it could be a directly false claim like this product made by this company is 50% recycled material when in fact there's no recycled material in it at all. It could be um, a kind of more vague, you know, our product is all natural. We don't really know what that means. Um, And it could be sort of there are many, many different other forms. But what's really important to understand about greenwashing is that it can refer not only to a product, like a specific advertisement for a product or a service, it can also refer to sort of efforts to paint the entire firm as being more environmentally conscious than it is. And I think that's the way in which it's been coming up a lot more recently. So what was it that piqued your interest about greenwashing and also kind of also about the First Amendment as well? 
Absolutely. So as you know, from our many conversations over the years, um, I'm a professor at Wharton in the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department. And um, and so my interest in kind of uh, the intersection of business and environment relates primarily to the legal rules and sort of the legal and policy environment that addresses the ways in which business firms interact with the environment. And greenwashing is this really interesting case because, you know, not only has it been coming up kind of more and more as firms are becoming more and more aware of the fact that their stakeholders want them to be more environmentally friendly or aware, um, but the question of are these claims real, are they backed by evidence, or are they greenwashing, has raised questions about how we need to think about enforcement and how can we prevent firms from misleading members of the public, be they consumers or investors or regulators, about the kind of bona fides of their uh, environmental marketing claims. So um, so that's kind of the big picture answer about how I'm, you know, why I'm interested in this topic. The most specific answer, actually, is that in the last few years, there's been a kind of shift in the way that greenwashing has entered the public consciousness. For many years, it was really all about product-based claims. You know, this product contains recycled material when it doesn't, or this product is, you know, um, non-toxic, but it's toxic. But what the shift has been is over the past few years, firms have increasingly been making claims about their environmental impact as a whole or their climate impact. So, for example, more than a thousand firms in the past few years have made public statements or commitments that they're going to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Some of those claims may be uh, real and you know, backed by evidence, and others may be just kind of puffery and kind of trying to go along with the flow. And so what I'm really interested in and what piqued my interest was situations in which the firm itself is kind of trying to characterize itself or its business as making a transition to a net zero uh, by 2050 world, um, when in fact, many of the firms are kind of continuing business as usual. Or you know, uh, sort of how to tell the difference. So that's really what piqued my interest in this project a few years ago. How prevalent do you think greenwashing is out there in the in the business community these days? Right. So the truth is, I think it's really hard to tell. I think that um, in a way, the prevalence depends very much on what your definition is. And it's this is the really hard part, right? Because when you think about certain legal terms like assault or murder or something like that, or, you know, fraud, those terms have legal definitions. A court ha- can say, is this fraud? Well, is it a material misrepresentation of facts that harmed, you know, that, that caused harm, right? There are elements Greenwashing is not a legal term of art. Greenwashing is like the word that we all use when we feel deceived. And so you might have a much broader definition of greenwashing than I do, or I might have a broader definition than you do, right? And so when I teach the topic of greenwashing to my students, this is actually really interesting. I give them a set of examples that are based on reality. Um, you know, real life uh, cases. And I asked them, is it greenwashing or is it not greenwashing? And of the six examples that I give, you know, two of them at the very extreme ends, one is clearly everybody's hand goes up. Yes, this is definitely greenwashing. And on the other extreme, 
not a single hand goes up, definitely not greenwashing. But in the middle, you get kind of 50-50 and it's really hard to know. And part of the reason why is because there can be directly false claims where you know, either it's factually true or factually not true, and you can test it like the content of a product. Um, but then there are the kind of misleading ones, like a, a major fossil fuel company having an ad that um, uh, highlights its investments in renewable energy. And those investments are real, but those investments comprise less than 1% of the entire business, right? And so it's trying to create an impression or a kind of halo effect that may be misleading um, as customers or investors are thinking, well, should I buy this stock or that stock? Should I go fill up my tank at this gas station versus that gas station, right? And so it affects consumer choices in the marketplace as well as investor decisions. So it's the truth is it's really, really hard to tell. There have been a few studies, um, particularly looking at, for example, the net zero claims by major firms in like the S&P 500. And one recent study suggested that the while, you know, the firms in the sample had stated publicly that they were going to get to net zero emissions uh, by 2050. In fact, they were only going to get about 40% of the way there. So that's one study. But that's kind of the, the range that we're dealing with. So uh, on the other side of this, as I alluded to, there's a component of First Amendment here. Uh, and, and I guess the question is, with the rights that we have under the First Amendment, does the issue of greenwashing violate those? Great. So super interesting question. And the reason why I think the First Amendment comes into play here is because the since 1976, the Supreme Court has protected not only political speech, right, like I'm going to vote for so-and-so, but also certain forms of commercial speech, as long as that commercial speech is truthful and accurate and not deceptive or misleading. And um, before 1976, there was essentially no protection. Like you couldn't say, I have a First Amendment right to advertise for my business, right? Um, you know, a state could say, no, your, your lawyers cannot advertise, right? And that wouldn't pose a First Amendment problem. But beginning in 1976, the, the court basically said, even commercial speech is protected. What's interesting about it is that the reason why the Supreme Court decided to protect commercial speech, like advertising or marketing claims, um, is not based on the kind of autonomy interest of the speaker. It's not about, you know, the Chevron Corporation's autonomy to say what it wants in the marketplace. It's about you and me as listeners and our interest in the marketplace in ensuring that there's accurate factual information so that we can make choices in the marketplace and we can make choices about how we want to regulate the marketplace. That's basically what the Supreme Court said. So when you think about that, that issue of misinformation and you think about the, the, the potential impact that it might have on the marketplace, there are a variety of different elements where it could have impact from bottom line benefit to the company, to the impact on its uh, shareholders, to the public. You know, there are so many areas that could potentially be impacted here. Absolutely. So we know from empirical research, some of which has been done by my Wharton colleagues, that marketing information about firms, sort of corporate social responsibility or their environmental programs um, can have an impact in kind of two primary ways. 
The first is on the consumer. So there's one study that demonstrates a kind of halo effect um, for products uh, produced by a firm that engages actively in corporate social responsibility. So participants in this study were provided information about, you know, firm A donates money to X cause, and then were asked to rate um, a hair regrowth product um, a tooth whitener and a uh, an optical character recognition text scanning program to to basically rate the programs rate these products as to how good they were you know how white are the teeth how much hair grew back how how clear is the scan um, and another group of participants were asked to rate the same products but were given no information about donations by the firm. And the participants who learned that the firm had engaged in corporate social responsibility rated the teeth as whiter, the text as clearer, and the hair as fluffier. And this is sort of a really clear demonstration of a halo effect, right? So when you, you know, when there are other studies that say that or that demonstrate that when consumers learn that a firm makes product X using renewable energy, or in some other kind of you know environmentally conscious way, they attribute that environmental consciousness to the firm's other products. They'll say, "Oh, well, if that product is made with renewable energy, then you know all the products may be made with renewable energy." There's an assumption to that effect. So there's kind of this halo of greenness that comes about. And if I'm making a choice in the marketplace about whether to purchase, you know, from firm A or firm B, and I find out that firm A is using renewable energy. I might buy from firm A. And so if that's true, then I'm making a good choice. If that's greenwashing, and in fact, the firm isn't using renewable energy or they're only using it in some really limited way, but they're hyping it up in their advertising, um, then I'm being misled and maybe I would have chosen the other product, right? So it distorts choices in the marketplace. The second major impact relates to our role, not as consumers, but as voters. And there are a number of different studies that show that when, when, um, in sort of in both directions that there are policy spillovers. So on the one hand, there is the negative policy spillover, meaning study has shown that when um, participants learn that all firms in an industry are setting targets that they're going to use recycled materials in their products, they're less likely to support public regulation on the same subject matter, largely because of this impression that like the firms have got it, right? This is under control. This isn't an area that we need to address with regulation. On the flip side, there are also studies that show that certain segments of the population may be more likely to support public regulation when they learn that a firm has taken action rather than like the state of California. So my favorite study in this regard is one uh, done by uh, some uh, faculty at, at Northwestern who basically showed participants in the study information about either California using cage-free eggs or McDonald's using cage-free eggs in their supply chains. And then they disaggregated the participants by political affiliation. And what they found was that if you're on the liberal side of the spectrum, it didn't really matter that much if you learned that California or McDonald's was using cage-free eggs. You were generally supportive of laws against battery hen uh, egg production, battery cage hen egg production. Sorry, I'm not saying that right, but you know what I mean. Whereas people who identified as very conservative 
when they learned that the state of California was purchasing only cage-free eggs, eh, they weren't super supportive of public policy. They're like, those tree huggers, uh, they're going to do what they want, crazy state of California. But when conservatives learned that McDonald's was purchasing cage-free eggs, they were as supportive of public policy on cage-free eggs as liberals. Why? Maybe if a major corporation thinks that this is an issue, as well as if a major corporation thinks that it can do this, you know, consistent with its profit maximizing goals, then this is really a problem. So I, as a conservative, am more likely to trust it if McDonald's thinks it's a problem than if the state of California thinks it's a problem, right? And so we, so there's an impact also on like the interest in members of the public to regulate the problem. So there's a component then of trust that is kind of involved in that messaging as well, especially when you're talking about an element of the government versus a, a, a corporate entity as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's pretty well established. There's this concept of source credibility, right? So depending upon you know, how I self-identify, whether it's as a matter of partisan politics or as a matter of other, you know, identity-based characteristics that I may find certain uh, sources more credible. So I might find the state of California more credible than the U.S. military. Someone might find the U.S. military more credible than McDonald's, right? You can, you can kind of see where it goes based upon sort of different values that we hold or different factors that that play into our identity. But I want to mention uh, just to sort of pick up your question from earlier about the First Amendment, that th the way in which the First Amendment really begins to come into play is because the First Amendment is a limit on what the government can do, right? The First Amendment basically says, I have a right not to be bothered by the government, not to be told what to do by the government in certain types of regulation. And so if we're thinking about what we want to do to prevent or deter or punish greenwashing, the First Amendment kind of sets the outer boundaries of what legal institutions like the Federal Trade Commission or the states or the Securities and Exchange Commission can do to either require disclosure of environmental information or after the fact to allow the government to sue a firm for a false or misleading statement. So in this era that we're in right now where uh, social is playing such an even greater role uh, in our communities and with the impact around around businesses. How much impact do you think a, a an expectation from the public or uh, that 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 social expectation? How much do you think that that can actually play a role in changing the mind or changing the path of a company uh, around some of these issues? So I actually think it's playing a really important role. I mean, I think it's playing an important role in, in sort of multiple different ways. At one level, there's like the organized social movement that's, you know, boycotting company X for not doing more on choose your issue, whether it's environmental or social or the organized environmental movement, you know, or the organized movement on the other side boycotting the company that's doing too much, right? I mean, so th there's there's sort of that level. I think that at a kind of more disaggregated level, there are empirical studies that show that consumers have expressed a greater willingness to pay for products 
that are more environmentally friendly. Um, and the fact that, you know, I have colleagues at Wharton who's, who have said, and I think that they're right, that as soon as we begin to live in a world in which the marketplace values environmentally friendliness, we're likely to see not only genuine environmental friendliness, but also greenwashing, right? Because firms want to, you know, some of them, it may be completely benign, right? They want to do something. They're like seeing all of their industry, you know, competitors announcing these pledges and they're like, oh, we've got to do something. And they don't necessarily know quite what to do. And so they make the pledge and they're not quite ready to support it with the facts. But, you know, if if they can kind of get on the bandwagon, then, you know, nobody's going to be upset. And then there's the like really, you know, intentional efforts to mislead. So then what do you think needs to occur then to be able to get kind of a more accurate picture of what companies are doing, especially if they are not telling the truth? Absolutely. So, um, so as a lawyer, it's very important to me to work in at least one or two Latin phrases during our conversation. <laughs> and so here they are. Okay. We have the right. We have the ex ante, and we have the ex post. So ex ante means before the fact. Ex post means after the fact. So often when we think about something like greenwashing, we think about ex post. Who can sue the company when they've published the ad and the ad is misleading? Um, that would be the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which has power under the Federal Trade Commission Act to um, go after companies that are engaged in deceptive marketing practices that affect commerce. And so the FTC has published something called the Green Guides, which are its interpretation of how that statute applies to environmental marketing claims. And the FTC just a couple of months ago requested and sort of comment on how it needs to update the guides. It hasn't updated them since 2012. It's due for an update. I will be submitting, you know, some, some suggestions, right? Um, but at the end of the day, that's the ex post. That's there was an ad. Somebody thinks that it's misleading. The FTC sues and seeks, you know, a cease and desist order, you know, take down that ad and pay a penalty. The ex-ante approach is the one that, frankly, I think is probably more important and more effective. And that's the one that's embodied in the Securities and Exchange Commission um, mandatory disclosure uh, ideas, right? So last year, the SEC um, published a proposed rule on climate disclosures that would apply only to publicly traded companies, but basically said that in their annual, you know, periodic reports that in addition to all the other information that they need to disclose on an annual basis, they also need to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. They need to disclose if they are have made a public commitment to reduce emissions, how they attend to achieve that goal. Do they plan to use carbon credits and offsets, et cetera? We are now waiting for the SEC uh, issued a proposed rule, has accepted comments on the rule, got many, 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 many comments, and is now working its way through them. And we're anticipating that sometime this spring, the SEC is going to publish a final rule, which will immediately be litigated in the courts. And so not going to come into effect immediately. But the idea of disclosure, and, and I'm a big fan of disclosure, is, you know, if we're putting more 
accurate factual information out into the marketplace, not only does that deter companies from putting false or misleading information into the marketplace, but it also gives us a better handle on sort of what companies are actually doing in a way that we can maybe do a better job of judging when claims are false or misleading. Do you think we're on on the right path in, in terms of really making some significant change uh, in this area and having less greenwashing out there, in, you know, kind of in the business public, business community and with the public as well? Right. So I think that the I think that if the SEC does go forward with this disclosure rule, my understanding and, you know, the sort of the word on the street is that the final rule will probably be narrower than the proposed rule based on the comments. But, you know, we'll have to see. I think that it will be a step in the right direction. You know, I think that it's really, really hard for regulators to catch up with marketing. Right. Regulators have to go through these really, really long and tortured processes to publish a you know, proposed rule and then accept comment and then a final rule. And all in the meantime, more and more claims are being made about, you know, the, the greenness of our, our industries. And whether it'll stamp out the problem, I don't know, but I think that it it's a definite step in the right direction. And probably a better one than just expecting that either the Federal Trade Commission or the states, which have similar powers, um, are going to go after every advertisement, right? That's a very laborious process. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.